myself on. Is that better? <laughs> One of David's 73 psalms, 150 in total, across the five albums. And we have here painted in the reading, which Guy read so beautifully for us, didn't he? Brilliant this morning. I said to Guy, take your time, Guy, over this psalm. <laughs> take your time, don't rush it. Because actually, there's at the end of each phrase in the psalm, there's like a, a boom moment for all of us. Not to be rushed, but to be savoured, to be tasted, to be chewed on, and to be enjoyed. And in Psalm 139, we have a kind of a backdrop against which we're invited to live out the Christian life. It's intimate and it's intricate and it's immense. It's intimate, it's intricate and it's immense, all at the same time. The detail that the psalmist goes into is incredible. And yet, as Jane and I last night enjoyed a little worship time of our own, sat on our settee watching planet Earth, we had a very similar experience, actually. <laughs> As thanks to the incredible, mind-blowing photography, it just, to me, I just can't even begin to get my head around it, how they can film things which, as David Attenborough says, are actually invisible to the naked eye. And yet we go on a guided tour of the coral reef and we see the depths of the seabed where the colour and the variety and the splendour of what God has created are mostly un undiscovered, undocumented. And it leaves you thinking, oh my goodness, how much more do, do we still not yet fully appreciate or understand about this incredible world that God has made. And yet this is the backdrop against which I work out my identity of who I am. I said last week, and I'll keep saying it, and Richard said it as well, that when we know who we are, and we know whose we are, Everything else follows naturally. <laughs> when you know who you are, when you know the God who has made you, and the God who knows you intimately and intricately, and yet also has a hand in creating this immensely beautiful planet on which we live. What can we do but worship? 
What is there within the human heart? What other possible response or reaction can there possibly be than to fall on our knees in utter and complete adoration and abandonment to this God? Now, I have to say that this psalm has brought life to me this week because I was wasted after last week. Is that the right word? Wasted? No. <laughs> Spent, that's the word I mean. <laughs> Dare you say, yeah, you were wasted as well, actually. <laughs> I was spent after last Sunday morning. I don't normally do two Sundays on the trot, as you know. Terry, I'm going to tell you this because it amused me. Terry said to me at the end of last Sunday morning, I know why the Lord only made you five foot two. That's because we couldn't handle it if you were any bigger. (laughs) (laughs) So I was spent after last Sunday morning and um, I thought, where am I going to get the energy, the inspiration from to bring another word Uh, next week and yet and yet this is how good God is because first of all he gave me the psalm and he said go to psalm 139 and I've been living in psalm 139 all week and I could probably talk about it for another week which will come as no surprise to you so I'm going to try and limit it to about 15 minutes But I had the privilege of spending three days at the beginning of this last week in North Norfolk So I was in Walsingham, and um, I began to feel quite odd and felt I should have taken a long black dress and a big round hat to wear because it's a a Roman Catholic shrine in Walsingham, if any of you have ever been there. And it's a beautiful part of the country, actually. And uh, and I love the autumn, and the colours were just stupendous as my friend and I drove down these beautiful country lanes in North Norfolk. And there was lots of ooing and ahhing, a bit like there was as Jane and I watched Planet Earth last night. And a bit like those of us who've managed to get a little glimpse of near Gallica over here this morning, ooing and ahhing and cooing and wanting to pinch and eat. Um, <laughs> not eat, no, sorry, not eat. I didn't mean that. Um, <laughs> um, my mum used to say to me, ooh, I could eat you. And I think I knew what you meant, but don't worry, you're safe. Um, <laughs> Lots of ooing and ahhing, and as, we, as my friend and I encountered the beauty of the autumn colours, oh, we were again further left in this place of utter wonder at this incredible God and what he's doing. And then I hear Ruth talking about her work this morning, and, and I think, and there's Jesus in that, there's Jesus working with intimacy and intricately and in immense ways bringing life out of death situations. People sometimes say, well, I don't, does God still resurrect people? I say, yeah, all the time, actually. (laughs) All the time. I see people all the time being released from that which is bringing death into their life. We may not see many physical resurrections, but spiritual resurrections are plenty. And those are the ones that last. (laughs) Those resurrections stretch on into eternity. 
Now in this psalm before us this morning, as we contemplate who we are, and as we embrace the fact that we are fully known, it's incredibly well structured actually, which should come as no surprise to us. The first six verses really speak of God's omniscience, the fact that he does know everything. You've searched me and you know me. It's a wonderful thing to be known, unless you're trying to hide something. It's a wonderful thing to be known, unless you're quite keen not to be known. And we're quite skilled at being anonymous at times. Wanting to be anonymous. Wanting to remain just out of things. Removing ourselves because we know the consequences of being known, really known, fully known, might be a bit more than we can bear. But let me tell you, we have nothing to fear at being fully known by God, our Heavenly Father. Nothing. The problem is, I suppose, that we, we tend to use human criteria when we have got vocabulary like this in the mix. As in knowing someone on a human level can be one thing. The acquisition of knowledge can dominate us sometimes. It dominates the world, the constant search for knowledge and for understanding. I had a fascinating conversation with a church leader on uh, Tuesday evening this last week. He's a vicar in Norwich and he said, you know what? I want to hang around with people who don't know anything but God. He said, we're too obsessed with staying on top of our Facebook feeds or our Twitter feeds. I know people who are obsessed with watching the news. Do you know anybody like that? Obsessed with watching the news. They fear that something might happen and they've not heard of it. And it's reflective of the obsession of the acquisition of knowledge. And his point was, I want to hang out with people who are not obsessed with their acquiring knowledge, but who will be obsessed with letting God know them. I have to say, I found that hugely refreshing. I speak as a bit of a social media addict. Those of you who know me will be aware of that. I don't spend all my life on it, but a good proportion keeping on top of who's doing what. It comes from my innate nosiness, I think, probably. I do like to know what's happening. I like to be in the mix. I'm trying not to look at anybody's face in particular who might think, yes, and so do I. So as my sabbatical approaches, which some have come as a total surprise to some of you, but at the end of January, I'm having a six-month sabbatical out of everything. And one of the things I'm sabbaticalizing from <laughs> is social media. So I'm going to disappear off the grid. I may well stay off the grid 
actually. But I don't think it's going to be easy because it's, I, it's got a bit of a grip. I like to know what's happening. But that's not the kind of knowledge that we're talking about here. We're talking about God knowing us. And knowing us at that base level, which Rich spoke about in the first week when he spoke about us being children of God. We're born as children of God and yet we place one layer after another or the world places one layer after another on top of us, attaches one label after another onto us, hangs one badge after another around our neck, telling us who we are, what we are, what we should be like, what we should sound like, what we should look like. God knows us intimately and intricately and immensely at that level that no one else sees. And that's the part he loves. So the first six verses are about his omniscience, his all-knowingness. The second six verses are about his omnipresence. He's everywhere. You can't go anywhere where he isn't. There's nowhere where the Spirit of God isn't. Jonah discovered that. He thought, he'd, he thought he could get away from what God was saying to him. He thought he could escape the message that God was giving him. And in his naivety, he got in a big boat and sailed in completely the opposite direction to where he was meant to be going. But God's plans weren't thwarted, were they? Jonah was ambushed. Ended up in this big fish. I mentioned that last week. And there's a sense in which this backdrop that we work out our Christian life against, it's about acknowledging God's incredible knowledge of us. But secondly, about walking into the goodness and living into the goodness of his omnipresence. There's nowhere where we can escape. You know, transformation is a slow process. Ask any butterfly. Transformation is a slow process. It takes time. And it's incremental, most of the time. We love the dramatic changes that take place in our lives. It's, it's, it's marvellous, and we, we make a big splash of, of um, conversion, as we call it, and um, healing, and um, sort of boom moments when God breaks in, and it's obvious that it's his spirit, and, and incredible changes have taken place. And that's wonderful. But often, the change takes place slowly and incrementally in a person's life. And we gradually become aware of this presence that surrounds us. And we end up going, wow, I tried to run away. But actually, he never let go of me. And he was there all the time. And then the next three, six verses look at his omnipotence. 
this all-powerful nature of God. But as I was praying about this this morning, I felt the Holy Spirit sort of reveal to me that, yes, God is all-powerful, but he's not all-controlling. Which came as a bit of a revelation to me, to be honest. Because he has delegated control to us. He has delegated huge amounts of control to us. And how we look after our planet. How we look after ourselves. Many of us find ourselves in situations sometimes and we're inclined to blame God and ask him why this has happened and why that's happened. And the plain and simple facts of the matter are we've made the wrong choices. And as like silly sheep, (laughs) we've nibbled our way to lostness. Because we've followed the line of green grass and they've ended up on a cliff somewhere. And you've probably seen them like I have as I've been through Wales and the Lake District and Scotland. And you see these silly sheep stuck in these corners up on a little ledge somewhere and you think, how on earth did they get there? Well, it's not rocket science actually. They've got there because they followed grass. (laughs) And we can be a bit like that. Well, I can, maybe I'm just speaking to myself here. I can nibble my way to lostness. And then I find myself in a place where I don't know what to do. (laughs) And I think, what about this all-powerful God who's meant to be in control? Why has he allowed all this to happen? Well, what about asking myself first why I've made these certain choices and options? Now, maybe at times, as I'm sure Ruth would tell us, there are circumstances in people's lives that have led to them being where they are. And that's why we need those kind of um, clinical psychologists and counsellors and therapists and people who will be able to bring another perspective into people's lives. All of which I see God working through. Isn't it it just... Oh, I'm so excited. Isn't it just so incredibly mind-blowing that God's in it all? Spheres of medicine. Delivery of babies. Oh... That not only has he crafted the ocean bed around the barrier reef, but he's formed those itsy-bitsy little nails in the womb. And he's been knitting it. I was, I was just um, I was looking at a YouTube clip this morning about the stages of growth in a baby and just thinking, wow, what they're capable of at sort of six weeks and seven weeks. It's just mind-blowing. And God's in it all. And this is the backdrop. This is the wonderful, beautiful, mind-blowing backdrop that we are so graciously invited to live our lives against. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That God loves us so much that he invited us into this place of life with him. Then I have to smile after those first uh, 18 verses. 
when we get this little rant, don't we? In Psalm 1, God, you're amazing, you're wonderful, you're you're omniscient, you're omnipresent, you're all-powerful. Oh, I hate your enemies. Oh, why don't you just get rid of them? That's what it feels like. Then at the end, he comes back again, so Lord. But isn't that a picture again of the human condition? Isn't it, if we're brutally honest, a picture of the human condition? I can stand here, and I'll let you into a secret now. Uh, I don't get on with everybody, which might come as a bit of a surprise, most people, but I can be here praising, thank you, Lord. Oh, I can be raising my arms and getting lost in wonder, love, and praise. Then I see somebody who's upset me, and I go, oh, he's here. <laughs> Oh, no, I hope she doesn't speak to me. I'll never get away from her. (laughs) Isn't it a picture of the human condition? That's what makes the Bible so beautiful to me and so full of life in that it's so normal and down-to-earth and it's just incredible. But what I also think is incredible is the fact that in those verses where David writes about hating God's enemies and I wish you'd just obliterate them from the face of the earth, how does that sit with when in Matthew 5 Jesus says, love your enemies? (laughs) How does that sit? (laughs) How do those two scriptures sit together? Well, here's my answer. For what it's worth, Jesus trumps Excuse the. I've just realised what I've said. Jesus trumps the Old Testament. Jesus trumps the violence of the Old Testament. The teaching of Jesus is paramount. There's a pattern going on throughout the whole of Scripture, and Jesus is the pinnacle. The life and teaching of Jesus Christ and the life that he calls us to in the Gospels is the pinnacle of kingdom existence. I found myself saying a couple of weeks ago in a moment of real reckless tweeting <laughs> that I, I don't desire to be, I, don't, I have no desire for biblical manhood or for biblical womanhood. What I have a desire for is to live a life based on Jesus' teaching, whether you're male or female. Do you like that? One, two of you, not quite sure. (laughs) My my desire is for biblical personhood. That each of us would be passionately committed to know who we are, to know what God thinks about us, to work our lives out in front of this incredible backdrop where the arms of Jesus are a bit like... Is that the reredos? Is that what we call it at the back? Oh, and Kath, that's the vestry, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know much, but I know where the vestry is. <laughs> Nobody will tell your husband, don't worry. I'm sure your secret's safe with everybody here this morning. <laughs> that is a more... You see that picture of Jesus up here? I wonder how many of you have ever, in your time at coming to All Saints, have reflected on what we have there? Because that's him. 
That is him to us this morning. That's the backdrop. It's the altar with Christ going, come on, come on, come on, come on. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you've thought, whatever's going on in your life, come on. Come here. It's a picture of the father in the prodigal story picking up his gown and running, showing his knobbly knees out towards the lost son and welcoming him back with open arms. And he doesn't say anything like, well, you better get on a six weeks alpha course before you think of setting foot in this house. He welcomes him immediately. And then I can contemplate this psalm and I think to myself, and where does this point us to Jesus? How and where does this psalm point us to Jesus? If this is one of the messianic psalms, what does that look like? Well, I think of his omniscience and I think of Jesus with the woman at the well who ran back into the village and said, come and meet someone who's told me everything I've ever done. There's the omniscience that in the person of Jesus and the power of his spirit, we have someone who knows everything we've ever done. And I think of his omnipresence and I think of the power of the Holy Spirit and the words of Jesus in Matthew 20, where he says, and I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Oh. I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. And then I think of his disciples as he's been in the boat and that storm has been raging and they turn around and they say, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Even the wind and the waves obey him. So there's Jesus. That's why it's a messianic psalm. That's why it's pointing to the future. It's pointing to this kingdom life which we're all invited to live with him.